Welcome to Slow Stories. I'm Rachel Schwartzman, the founder of Connected Editorial and the host and creator of this podcast. For those of you just joining in, Slow Stories is a series that deep dives into the rising slow content movement. In each of these episodes, I interview brand builders, entrepreneurs, and creative professionals who share what slow content means in the context of what they're building and why slowing down and creating thoughtful stories is more important than ever. Today's episode begins with an opening story from Echo Hopkins, who shares an essay that made her feel closer to a friend during a time of solitude. Here's more from Echo. My name is Echo, and I'm the co-founder of Ordinary Habit, a recently launched brand that's first collection of jigsaw puzzles are meant to encourage moments of calm in your day. Something that recently made me slow down and stop scrolling is a book by Durga Chubos called Too Much and Not the Mood. The book's comprised of essays, some are short, some longer, which has been perfect for my wandering attention span with everything that's been happening these days. Durga's also a dear friend of mine, and while we're all being forced to spend less time physically together, being able to read her essays makes me feel like we're at least mentally able to share some space. This passage from the essay Heart Museum reminded me of our current lives, even though it was written years ago. So that's what I'm going to share with you today. Nook people are those of us who need solitude, but also the sound of someone puttering in the next room. Someone working on his project down the hall and behind a door left ajar. We look away from our screen and hear him turning a page or readjusting his posture. And isn't it time for lunch? Resurfacing is nonpareil, and splitting a sandwich with someone you've said maybe Two words to all morning is idyllic. A brief belief that life picks up after a few bites of toasted rye. Though if I'm honest, the thought of splitting a sandwich suddenly makes me enormously sad. How long has it been since I've enjoyed the company of someone else enjoying his food? The way he'd toss chips in his mouth and savor the crunch, and then wipe his hands on his jeans and smile. Not at me specifically, but at this wonderfully unspectacular event. The sandwich, the chips, the crunch, our appetites. Thank you so much again to Echo for sharing. Again, the essay she read from was from the book Too Much and Not the Mood, Essays by Durga Chubos. Now here's my conversation with Suleika Jawad. Our perspectives are shaped by the experiences we collect while writing the many chapters of our lives. Though as we go through life writing and reading between the lines of living, we brace for the plot twists that have the power to rewrite our stories in ways that we could have never expected. Suleika Jawad has lived through this and has created an extraordinary story of her own that's rooted in strength and transcendence. When she was just 22 years old, Suleika was thrown off course with a devastating leukemia diagnosis. With dreams of becoming a foreign correspondent, she instead found herself, as she says, reporting from the front lines of her hospital bed. Her gift for storytelling and radical honesty about life as a young person living with illness culminated in a series of blog posts which eventually led to her New York Times column, Life Interrupted. But despite this grave interruption, Suleika leaned into her love for creativity to get her through. Today, Suleika is a highly regarded creative professional, writer, and speaker. But when COVID-19 appended the world earlier this year, Suleika found herself revisiting the notion of what it means to be isolated as a result of illness. Enter her latest project, The Isolation Journals, which has given rise to a vibrant community around the world who are looking to transform life's interruptions into creative grist. 
And while there's something to be said for there being strength in numbers, Suleika has made a compelling case for the creativity and unexpected sense of connection that can arise even when we find ourselves in periods of solitude. In this interview, Suleika shared more about the inception of the isolation journals, how she indulges in slow storytelling, and how cultivating a lifelong creative practice has brought renewed meaning to her life. There's so much wisdom in this interview, so I won't give too much more away. With that said, here's my conversation with Suleika Jawad. Well, first, I just want to say I love that question. I was at a dinner party a couple of years ago with uh, the therapist, Sarah Perel, and she asked everyone to introduce themselves uh, by their unofficial resume, meaning the things that not only would never make it onto their resume, but might disqualify you from a job. Um, I, what can I say about myself? I am a reader and a mom to two uh, very badly behaved rescue mutts and a daughter and lover of the outdoors. Yeah. And I think all of those things seem to sort of make their way into what you do professionally too, which is a gift. Well, I think if, if we're lucky, yeah, there, there's overlap between the two. Um, but it definitely feels like a privilege for for those things to feel integrated because it hasn't always been that way. Yeah, absolutely. And I think going back to the subject of your love and identification with reading, I'm wondering what have you been reading lately and if there's been a particular story that you've come across that's inspired you to sort of pause or slow down? Yeah. Um I don't know about a book that's inspired me to slow down but one that's definitely made me pause and reflect a lot is uh Geraldine Brooks's novel Year of Wonders which is about a a historical plague and um it's been really interesting to read books and and essays uh written about you know different moments in history that have resonance with the one that we're living right now um, and so that's been the thing that's been making me pause, not only because of the sort of uh, echoes with what we're living in this moment, but also because the writing is just so damn beautiful. So I keep pausing and, and writing down sentences and turns of phrases in my notebook. Yeah, it's always a plus when the writing just kind of takes your breath away. The way that I've been connecting with the books that I've been reading is after I finish, I kind of, I don't want to say assign myself, but I give myself a prompt to write about a line or a sentence that's resonated with me with each book that I've read. And I found it to be a really nice way to revisit the story once you're kind of out of it, um, you know, even if it's only been a day or so. But generally, it's a nice exercise to kind of make sure you can connect with some of the things that you're consuming, which in this day and age can be a difficult thing to do since we have so many distractions. Yeah. And I think, you know, for me always, there's no better testament to a good book than one that makes you want to read more slowly when you reach the midpoint because you don't want it to end. Um, and yeah, I, I've, I've found the same thing. I mean, it's it's been hard on the one hand to find the focus to read um 
It's actually my first time just in the last few weeks reading, probably since March, uh, reading books, that is, um, just because I think in, in normal times, it can be difficult to, to you know, find uh, not just the time, but the attention span needed to read something as long form as a book. But certainly right now, with everything that's happening in the news, it's easy to just start to read in these bite-sized kind of information lumps that we get throughout the day. Yeah. I think I have the opposite problem though. I've probably been reading, well, I don't know if there's such a thing as reading too much, but it's been my one escape through all of the chaos and tragedy. But, you know, I think that's the power of storytelling, right? It can help you examine the world just as much as escape it. And I think too, just while we're on the subject of storytelling, for those who maybe aren't as familiar with your story, I would love to have you talk about what you've been doing for the last few years and how your experiences have informed your relationship with storytelling and overall creative practice as well. Mm. Yeah, so I'm someone who's always uh, always loved stories. I've loved writing them. I love reading them. I've said many times that books saved my life uh, as a kid and they were very much a, a refuge for me. Um, and as you said, and, and put it so beautifully, um, this way of both escaping the world, but also examining it more closely uh, through an author or a narrator's eyes. Um, but I'm not someone who ever really considered writing as a career. I don't even think I knew that was something that you could do um, for for a job job. And uh, the closest I got to kind of imagining how I might turn this love of story into something that could sustain me uh, professionally was uh, journalism. So in 2010, I graduated from college and I was kind of toying with this idea of journalism, but unsure of how to even get my foot into the door of that world. The reality was that I also just needed a job. So I actually took a job as a paralegal uh, in, in France when I graduated and hoped that, you know, with enough time, I might eventually find my way to a career that both paid the bills and creatively inspired me. Uh, but before I was able to do any of that, I was diagnosed with leukemia and ended up moving back into my childhood bedroom where I spent much of the next couple of years living uh, in and out of there in hospital rooms. But, you know, oddly, as my world dwindled, uh, especially in those first two years to not just the size of a room, but often just a bed. I had a kind of forced stillness in my life uh, for the first time, maybe ever. I'm a kid who, you know, moved a lot growing up. Um, and for the first time in my life, I not only didn't have the possibility of being on the move, but I wasn't allowed to even leave my hospital room or my home. And whenever I did, it was with a face mask and gloves and great precautions. 
in that first year, I think that that forced stillness and isolation was um, incredibly frustrating for me. Uh, I wanted to be a normal 20-something-year-old. I wanted to be starting a career and traveling and going to parties and dates and all those normal milestones of early adulthood. But of course, I couldn't do any of that. And so I found myself searching for something I could do from bed. And eventually that led me back to stories. Um, I returned to kind of my my first love of, of reading, but uh, more importantly, I returned to journaling, which is something I've been doing since I learned how to write. And so to make a, a longish story, hopefully somewhat short, the journal writing I did in that year ended up uh, becoming the source material for uh, the column I would later write called Life Interrupted in the New York Times, where I chronicled that experience of illness and youth from the front lines of my hospital bed. So that's really how that transition from, from being just a person who loved reading and who loved writing, but mostly, you know, in the privacy of a notebook and or in the privacy of my own books turned into something that I did um, for, for work, even though it still doesn't quite feel like work. Uh, it can certainly feel like a real labor, uh, but mostly it's a, a labor of love. I think what I've learned personally about reading and writing, particularly writing, is that it is a labor of love, but it's also a choice. It's something that we choose to not only do, but the things that we're writing, we're kind of choosing to confront by putting it down on paper, which I think is something that can be so transformative. And something that we've been talking a lot about recently is creating the space to do that and giving ourselves the time. But, you know, in this very kind of rapid, or at least up until 2020, this very rapid life that we were all leading in many ways kind of revealed that slowing down and changing our relationship with pace is necessary. But to your point about being in a sort of forced stillness, I've also been talking to a lot of other guests on this podcast about slowness, only really being a positive thing when it comes by choice. And I think you know, we're all collectively experiencing what you experienced then, right now. And I'm curious how this particular moment in time has sort of inspired your current outlook on the power of choice. Yeah, I mean, it's something I've thought about a great deal, not just in the last couple of months, but over the last decade of my life. Um, I think in these moments of enforced stillness, there are any number of ways uh, we can choose to respond. And I have been through the full spectrum from a sense of complete defeat uh, and, and despair uh, to a decision to try and make of these surreal circumstances that we find ourselves in and, and to make of this stillness a kind of creative solitude. But I think, you know, from the outside, when we see people uh, being creative or, you know, churning out new books, it's easy to assume that other people um, do this more easily, perhaps than the rest of us, or that it comes more easily to them. And 
I know from my own writing practice and from those of my writing friends, it it rarely ever does. Um, And it's less a question of inspiration than a matter of extreme discipline and persistence. And so, you know, for me in this time right now, I have written every day uh, for at least the first hundred days. Now, a little bit more sporadically, I'm trying to take some time off because that kind of uh, enforced slowness I found is important too. Um, But, you know, that uh, decision to come up with a project, and in my case, it was this 100-day project of of journaling, and to stick to it is something um, I did when I was sick and and something I found to be profoundly grounding and generative. Um, Because I think the truth is that within these times of enforced stillness, um, there are going to be many days when the last thing you want to do is to sit down and be creative in any capacity. But what I've found is that it's often on those very days when I'm feeling a huge amount of resistance, um, choose to kind of push through that resistance that I often sort of excavate a little gem in my writing, or at the very least, build that muscle of discipline and feel a sense of gratification for doing it because I didn't want to do it. And yeah, so that's a practice that I have worked very hard at, um, especially in, in difficult moments. Yeah. And I think this year in particular, and to your point again about being intentional and disciplined and really choosing to refine your creative muscle and commit to something, you know, this year has really revealed why it's so important to give ourselves that runway to be able to do that, especially during a time of crisis. And it's something, uh, you know, I just relaunched Slow Stories a couple of months ago. And when I was planning this process, the world hadn't yet been rocked by COVID-19 and transformed by all of the conversations that we're having now. But in our most current phase, I'm really interested in having Slow Stories be a vehicle to explore how we choose to slow down and practice conscious creativity in our digital age. And a lot of the conversations that I've had have pointed back to elements from the slow food movement and slow fashion movement. And I'm particularly interested in how some of these intentional values can contribute to the slow content movement. And so I always like to ask everyone who joins me on the podcast what this idea of slow content or storytelling means to them and what they're doing. Hmm. I love that so much. Um, There are times, obviously, when you have a deadline or when you have an assignment uh, where there are certain time constraints. But for me, the kind of richest writing I've done is uh, the writing I did without any intention of ever showing it to anyone. Uh, It's the stuff I write in the margins or in my notebook or in a throwaway letter to someone where there aren't any pressures to perform or to be prolific. Um, And, you know, to the point that I sometimes try and and trick my mind back into that space, Uh, I'll title word docs um, 
with the words chop file, which is usually uh, <laughs> what I reserve for, for the scraps that I cut from, uh, <laughs> from more polished pieces of writing. And uh, the reason I do that is because there's a kind of um, unstructured ease, I think, when we're able to release ourselves from any expectations that lends itself to kind of allowing your mind to go for a walk to meander and to go to places that maybe it wouldn't have otherwise. The other, you know, version of slow storytelling that I've been doing is recording voice memos as I'm out walking my dog in the woods. And I'll just kind of have a conversation and I don't really know where it's leading, but often I'll kind of stumble onto an idea or onto a line or even into onto a solution for some structural problem that I'm trying to figure out and a piece of writing when I'm out walking. So yeah, I mean, I love, I love this concept of slow storytelling, especially in an age, in a digital age where people are churning out stories and opinions uh, at warp speed on all the many mediums that we have access to. And I'm also, you know, a big believer in keeping many word docs. Uh, I kind of title mine by theme and I'll just kind of plop ideas into there or lines from books that I like or things that inspire me. And I don't quite know what it's all amounting to, if anything. But, you know, some of those word docs I've had on my desktop for years. And yeah, I kind of think of myself as like a, a hamster <laughs> that stores away these little nuggets. And I don't know if anything will come of it, but that's always been for me, um, not just the the kind of most generative way of writing, but also the most enjoyable. Yeah. And what you said about the performative aspect, that's something that I think a lot of storytellers and writers kind of feel victim to. And I certainly did up until I really made the commitment to practice what I preach and truly slow my scroll, which is one of our taglines. Um, but I also just want to say that I think the voice memo idea is so brilliant. I'm not sure if it's been a prompt for the isolation journals yet, but I think that could be an amazing kind of exercise for everybody to try at a certain point. And I think too, you were kind of in this space before the advent of social media and you know, digital platforms seem to play an important role to connect with others and share your experiences. And I'm curious if you've seen a particular change within the kind of online media landscape since writing Life Interrupted for a big outlet like The Times to up until now launching a more grassroots community initiative like the Isolation Journals on social media. The reason I started writing Life Interrupted is because at 22, I was, you know, uh, just a year or two old for pediatrics, but often decades younger than a lot of the patients around me. And I felt profoundly isolated uh, within that experience. I didn't relate to the other patients, but I also felt deeply disconnected from a lot of my friends who were just leading such different lives to the one I was leading. And so I started to search for stories of young people dealing with illness. And, and most of the ones that I found 
were written from the perspective of people who had survived their illnesses, um, which was, you know, inspiring, but also a very different vantage point to tell a story from than when you're sort of in the trenches of an illness and um, you don't know if you're going to survive. Whereas was the case for me, you know, there's a very uh, likely chance you won't survive. Um, and so I decided to try and write about that experience in real time. Um, and the, you know, beauty of this digital age that we live in is that anyone can start a blog. Um, and, you know, I had never studied writing, didn't have an MFA, I'd never been published before. Um, but blogging seemed like something semi-accessible to me, at least once I figured out the basics of how to create a blog, which is not very easy. Uh, I'm not the most technologically adept person, um, but I did it. You know, I watched YouTube videos from my hospital room and I built this very, very basic blog and I started to write every day and I took it really seriously. I gave myself office hours um, because it felt, you know, good to have structure and it felt good to have a job to do other than just being a patient. Um, even if my, you know, readership, I thought was probably going to just consist of my grandmother and maybe my parents and a handful of, of kind friends. And I worked slowly at it, um, slowly in part because I was learning my craft, but also because I was really sick. And so I could only work in these small bursts throughout the day. And I launched this blog that just a couple of weeks later uh, led to a phone call from an editor at the New York Times who asked me if I might uh, consider writing an essay. Um, and I pitched to them uh, this column. And so, you know, obviously that's, a, I think, a, a unique and in some ways uh, unrelatable uh, experience. And I think I was fortunate. Um, to start blogging at a time when it wasn't as widespread as it is now. And to blog uh, for the New York Times was, you know, uh, they, were, they were in the very early days of having uh, online contributors. Uh, and since then, of course, there are many people um, who blog in real time about all kinds of experiences, uh, including illness. You know, I think in some ways things have changed and that there's so much storytelling happening um, online and in different mediums that it can feel overwhelming. Um, and I think it's harder sometimes to break through. But that sense, that, that democratic sense that, you know, anyone can start anything from their bedroom or their hospital room still prevails. And it's honestly, for me, the most exciting creative space to be in. Uh, it's also the space from which I birthed my, my latest project, the Isolation Journals, where in a way I took a very similar approach to the one that I did at 22 in my hospital room. And I decided to start this community project from my parents' attic where I was staying uh, in the early months of shelter in place. Um, and without really knowing what I was doing, I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos and with the help of a group of friends, figured out how to start 
and email newsletter and reach out to some friends, writers, artists uh, to see if they might offer some words of inspiration and a journaling prompt. And so that's what I did every day, starting on April 1st for a hundred days, I sent out a different journaling prompt. It was uh, a pretty high learning curve for me in part because of the success of the project. Within a couple of days, uh, we had something like 40,000 people who had signed up for the newsletter and all kinds of uh, mishaps were happening behind the scenes, websites crashing and newsletter typos and formatting issues and all the kind of unsexy, unglamorous things that nobody sees, but that end up you know, consuming many hours of your day or leave you on the phone with uh, someone at a help desk somewhere out there in the world trying to help you parse together a solution to whatever your your digital problem might be. But yeah, I mean, I think that's what I love so much about this digital age of storytelling. It's this sense that anyone can do it. You don't need to have degrees. You don't need to have a certain kind of resume to tell a story and to put it out there in the world. It's incredible. And congratulations on the runaway success. Um, I know you also just launched a website for the isolation journals too. So it's an official digital home. I don't know about official, but we're, we're trying really hard to make it <laughs> be, be a thing out there. Um, and thank you. Yeah. I mean, um, Building that website was another steep learning curve. But I think for me, like those kinds of bootstrappy projects are the projects where I feel I learn the most and I most, I get to kind of satiate curiosities and I get to kind of um, build something from the ground up. And, and I love I love that that feeling, uh, and there's, you know, a real excitement and electricity uh, when you have the chance to take a project from a germ of a, you know, far-fetched, ridiculous idea and usher it into existence, however small or big. Absolutely. Has there been a prompt that's turned out to be like unexpectedly comforting for you? Hmm, that's a great question. Um, we had the most beautiful prompt from a six-year-old boy named Lou. He's been undergoing cancer, and his prompt was inspired by this game he calls Inside Seeing, which is essentially his version of meditation, uh, but a slightly more imaginative one where instead of you know quieting your mind's thoughts, he um sits and 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 really tries to take in whatever inner landscape um is is kind of taking shape and then he transcribes that onto the page. Uh and I know for me meditation is something that's always challenging for me uh as someone who has a very short attention span. Uh but it's definitely been challenging in the last couple of months. Uh so you know, framing those, you know, 10 minutes of sitting down on the floor as a game has been helpful for me. And this idea of inside seeing, I just love so much. Um, and it's been something that's fed a lot of 
the writing I've been doing. That's amazing. I mean, I'm trying to find the right word for it because it's just amazing that somebody that young can tap into their imagination to come up with something like that. And I'll just, I'll have to revisit that prompt because I also am not good at meditating or really any kind of thing in that realm. But yeah, it's amazing. And I think too, what's really interesting about the isolation journals is that it's rooted in this idea of solitude, but you've rallied such a community around being alone. And so has there been any sort of unexpected narrative that's arisen from the community that you didn't expect people to approach you with, whether it was a question or somebody trying to start a conversation? You know, the thing that's been most surprising to me is that the isolation journals has turned into a very real and vibrant community. Uh, And people have written to me about the friends they've made uh, amongst the other, you know, fellow journalers. Um, and I'm still waiting for the first isolation journals wedding to take place. Uh, and I really hope I get invited, but I, it never ceases to amaze me how when people do a certain kind of unvarnished storytelling, uh, a deeply, you know, vulnerable, honest kind of storytelling and, and dare to put that out into the world in whatever capacity that may be. Um, it offers other people the chance, uh, not only to experience that storytelling, but to respond in kind to their own stories. Uh, and so that sort of reverberation that happens The storytelling uh, is a really beautiful thing to witness and seeing people sort of transform that creative solitude into uh, these moments of connection and friendship and community has been really astounding. I think uh, when I first started it, my hope was that, you know, people first would be able to develop a daily journaling practice because it's something that I know can be so hugely uh, helpful and, and, and transformative and inspiring. But I don't know that I necessarily expected people to share their work with one another and beyond that to actually form these deep friendships. I think too, when you create a space um, that's as vibrant and special as something like the isolation journals has turned into, it kind of helps facilitate that pace and allows people to feel like they can slow down while also creating mental runway to be able to reflect and ask questions, which I think is something that just gets lost in the day-to-day of just trying to get through our lives. And so with that said, I'm curious if there's a particular question that you hope people start asking you more often as we move through this time and as you continue to build on some of these themes that you've started with the isolation journals. You know, one of our first prompts was from my friend Nora McInerney, and it was inspired by the most common question that we ask each other, which is, how are you? Um, and she kind of wrote to uh, the fact that we so rarely answer that question honestly. Um, and so I think my hope 
is that whether it's a question that's posed to me or a question that people pose to each other or to themselves, uh, that when we ask, how are you? We ask that with the intention of actually, you know, listening to whatever may be on the other side of that question and that we answer it, uh, not just reflexively with the usual fine or good, but that we excavate a little deeper and make it a practice of trying to, to actually think through how we are and, and if it feels okay to share that response as honestly as we can. Yeah, that's a good point in terms of getting to the core of how we're actually feeling. You know, just as you were speaking, I'm curious as you reflect on some of these things and these moments of isolation and interruptions, if there's been a particular lesson that you've learned about turning these things into opportunities for growth, whether personally, professionally, or creatively, and how it's been a vehicle for that transformation? I think the biggest thing for me is actually releasing myself from the pressure to turn it into any, anything really, um, to turn it into an opportunity for growth or into, if you're, say, writing in your journal, to turn it into something publishable or, or whatever the expectation may be. I think the lesson for me is in, uh, and it's a lesson I've learned again and again and that I'm still learning uh, to, to release myself from expectation of any sort of um, you know, ideal output, uh, but to focus on the practice itself, on the act uh, for me of of getting up and making you know the time to sit at my dining room table for ten minutes and to write in my journal and finding the discipline to do it consistently and the perseverance to do it. Uh, on the days when I don't want to do it at all. And so I encourage people to release themselves from the, the pressures of expectation and the anxieties of accomplishment um, and to focus on uh, cultivating a practice, whatever that practice may be, that helps you feel grounded and inspired and connected. Absolutely. And to your point about releasing the pressure and straying away from performance, it's a nice segue into one of my last questions that I like to ask to bring these discussions full circle, especially in the vein of creating anything in our chaotic digital space. So with that said, my last question for you is, why do you think slowing down our relationship to content will ultimately help us live, work, and feel better? I think that we live in this age where for most people, when they wake up, they roll over, pick up their phone, and their brain is instantly flooded with content, with stories, whether it's the news or it's Instagram or it's your email or texts from your mother-in-law or whatever it may be. And I think we live in an age of overwhelm uh, overwhelm is a word that I see maybe more than any other and the journal entries that people share. 
And so I think that the antidote to overwhelm is deliberate slowness. Um, And that starts in the way that you treat yourself. It starts in the way that you approach your work and the way you make your breakfast and you, you know, can't separate one from the other. So they're all interconnected. Um, But I think the biggest thing for me is removing uh, any illusions of urgency because for whatever reason, I'll sometimes find myself racing to do something, whether it's racing to hit send on an email or racing through the grocery store and not sure where that sense of urgency comes from. But I know that it's connected to the pace of the world and to the pace of our news cycle. Um, And so clocking that impulse of urgency and taking a second to kind of still myself has been the most important thing, especially now. was my conversation with Suleika Jawad, creator of the Isolation Journals. I highly recommend watching Suleika's TED Talk and of course following her online at Suleika Jawad. You can also check out the Isolation Journals on her Instagram account and at theisolationjournals.com. And in the meantime, follow us on social media for highlights from this episode and more at Slow Stories Official on Instagram and at Slow Stories Pod on Twitter. Thanks so much for tuning in.